0: This is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory.
1: G'day there, my name is Matt Brand. Welcome to the program. Project Sea Dragon has gone into voluntary administration. It would seem plans for a major prawn farm in the Northern Territory are now dead in the water.
2: You know, once you. Uh... Going to administration, it's very rare that you come out the other end, so uh, certainly sounds like the project uh, is finished, for these guys at least.
1: Also today, a look at the work being done to give farmers a fighting chance against that pest fall armyworm, and could growing peanuts in northern Australia be a win for lovers of peanut butter, but also the cattle industry. It's really exciting to see that from taking
3: an in-season cut of biomass, that treatment has actually not had a particularly negative effect on the nut quality and yield that we're seeing at the end of the season.
1: We're off to a field day at Undulia Station as well. Plenty on today's Country Hour menu. Let's get amongst it. We're broadcasting across the Territory on the ABC. G'day there if you are tuning in via the podcast plans to build one of the world's largest prawn farms on a remote cattle station in the Northern Territory appear well and truly dead in the water. Sea Farms has confirmed that it will no longer fund Project Sea Dragon. And if you're not across that, Project Sea Dragon, well, it's been around for about 10 years, a very ambitious project. The idea was to produce 100,000 tons of black tiger prawns every single year at Lejeune Station near the WANT border. So Project Sea Dragon, it has fallen into voluntary administration and its parent company, Sea Farms, has requested a trading suspension from the ASX. Now remember, this is a project that's been stumbling along for about a decade and along the way has lured a lot of government funding, including about $50 million from the NT government. The Territory's Infrastructure Minister, Eva Lawler, was asked about this at a press conference this morning. Let's have a listen.
4: Let's just be clear. All the dollars that went into that project from the NT government weren't just for that project. So, for example, um, the Gunpoint Road. So Gunpoint Road was $30 million. It was a great project that involved three companies. It was during that time where we needed stimulus for the economy But also it's opened up Gunpoint for locals. Um, I'm meeting with Land Corporation today. Land Corporation own all of that land out there. We've done the land use plan out there. Gunpoint has a lot of hope around the future development of Gunpoint, so whether that's tourism, whether that's farming out there, whether that's residential. So the road to Gunpoint was $30 million, Three territory companies benefited from the build of that, but it's also a road for Territorians, and a lot of people head out to gunpoint, particularly on weekends. The next one was the Keep River Road. That was about $55 million. Most of that, 80 million, uh, 80% came from the Federal Government. That road links the WA border and then moves into the Territory that is about that stage three of the ord. So again, Land Corporation put out um, an expression of interest which has been filled around farming in that area, around cattle um, and development in that area. There's also communities in that area. There's also stations in that area. There's also possibilities around future gas development. So any of those, any of those financial commitments that Seafarm were going to benefit from weren't just about Seafarm. They were also about other, other opportunities out there for business and for the economy.
1: As the Territory's Infrastructure Minister, Eva Lawler, taking questions about the fall of Project Sea Dragon and all of the taxpayer dollars that have been spent helping that project along over the years. On Twitter, Maria Magnay, who lives in Cananara says, how much did the Keep River Bridge cost? And if only we could pick it up now and relocate it to the Fitzroy River member of the opposition in the Territory, Steve Edgington, says the fall of Project Sea Dragon will hurt investor confidence in the Northern Territory in general. Well,
5: when it comes to investor confidence, uh, what we see is that uh, when projects like this fail, it also has an impact on smaller medium-sized businesses that are looking to get a slice of uh, some of these projects as they uh, develop in the Northern Territory. So when it comes to investor confidence, seeing two uh, large projects currently in administration, uh, investors would be sitting on the sidelines looking at this and wondering why uh, not only are these projects not going ahead, but is it worth investing in the Territory, particularly when we have high crime, uh, alcohol issues, all of those matters impact on people looking to invest in the Northern Territory.
1: Now, while this prawn farm would have been located in the Northern Territory there on Lejeune Station, the town and the region that really would have benefited most from Project Sea Dragon would have been Kununurra there in the East Kimberley. The prawn farm would have been about, I don't know, 100 kilometres away. Tony Schaefer is from the local shire there in Kununurra and says, while he's not really that surprised... It is a blow for the region.
2: That's devastating news for the community. You know, once you uh, go into administration, from what we've seen with uh, some recent developments in this part of the country anyway, it's very rare that you come out the other end. So uh, certainly sounds like the project uh, is finished, for these guys at least. But that project promised so much for the community. So many jobs, having a new economy in the Kimberley as well, in the East Kimberley. Uh, everyone was looking forward to it, so it's devastating news. What
6: do you think the community reaction will be to this news? This has been in the pipeline for more than a decade. How do you think the community will feel about it pretty much being dead in the water?
2: Well, look, it will be, uh, as I said, devastating news for the community. The project's been uh, on and off again for much of the past 10 years. So every time we've heard it's been over before, it's uh, had a bit of life breathed back into it. You know, it's a scaled-back project, so we've been hopeful that that would happen and that they could build the project to its ultimate scale at some point in the future. But, uh, yeah, this sounds like it's uh, not even getting to the next stage now.
6: Are you surprised by this news, Tony? <clears throat>
2: Yes and no. A couple of years ago, when they had the last issue with uh, with the CEO being dismissed and uh, some issues around the board, you know, there was you know there was a bit in the news about whether or not the project was even viable. There was a bit of, I guess, disbelief from uh, the incoming CEO at the time that it stacked up. So uh, we were all hopeful that he'd got that wrong. Yeah, but this uh, isn't good. I won't say I'm completely surprised, but I'm. I'm, I'm I'm really disappointed for the community.
6: The government has thrown a lot of money into this. What about the shire? Have you put a lot of money into this?
2: No, no, so we haven't spent any of the ratepayers' money on it. We were uh, likely to pick up some uh, maintenance, uh, ongoing maintenance on the road, but yeah, no, we, uh, we certainly didn't sink any uh, ratepayers' money into this project. We just put a lot of effort in supporting it, so yeah, a lot of time went in uh, from shire officers and uh, also councillors in supporting the project and doing whatever we could to get approvals through, and yeah, aside from that, uh, yeah, we're not uh, we, we, we're not owed any money.
6: Do you think it will deter governments from investing in northern projects in the future?
2: That's possible. That's possible. I hope it doesn't because uh, these guys, you know, I understand the government has invested a, a bit of money into in infrastructure, but these guys invested a fair bit themselves. I mean, I can't recall the level of investment they've already put in there, but I, I think it was, you know, uh, in the order of uh, $100 million that they've invested in their own money. So there was belief amongst in the project that it was viable. And, you know, who knows? There's a bit of infrastructure out there now. There's obviously the road that the Northern Territory and state governments have invested in. I believe there's, uh, you know, the actual earthworks for the ponds and uh, there's some other infrastructure that's there. So who knows? Perhaps someone else will pick this up for a bargain price and and run with the project. We can only hope. Do you
6: think other companies in – or other businesses and other people in the Kimberley will benefit from investment in that infrastructure that did come with the project?
2: That's difficult to say. Obviously, that particular property uh, that the road runs through, you know, having sealed uh, all weather access there, uh, if any development should occur there, particularly around the Ord, around uh, the Northern Territory side of uh, the Ord development, potentially uh, that road benefits them. And who knows? I mean, once infrastructure's there, if if there are other projects in that particular area that, uh, that needed it, well, I've got it now. So, uh, yeah, I guess it would help.
1: That is Tony Schaefer from the Shire of Wyndham, East Kimberley, speaking to Steph Sinclair. On Twitter, I see Kelly Dupe, who grew up in Kununurra and now works for the Countryman newspaper. She writes, This is truly terrible news for Kununurra, with the project once billed as the next big thing for a local economy that is still finding its feet after the closure of the Argyle diamond mine. Across the Territory on the ABC, you are tuned into the Country Hour. Our text number is 0487-991057. And if you're just tuning in, today we are covering the fall of Project Sea Dragon, a project that was aiming to be one of the world's largest prawn farms right here in the Northern Territory. But now it has fallen into voluntary administration. Its parent company has pulled the pin and will no longer fund Project Sea Dragon. The fall of this project caps off a pretty bad start to 2023 for the Territory's economy and the NT government as it plans to create this $40 billion economy by 2030. That's the government's words, not mine. Former Chief Minister Michael Gunner, he made a speech last year talking about the Territory being the comeback capital and spruiking how the Territory will become this $40 billion economy. Here's a listen to some of that speech last year, and I think it's fair to say that some of this speech has not aged well.
7: Ladies and gentlemen, this is how we become a $40 billion economy by 2030. These are the investments that get us there. Construction of the $400 million shiplift commences this year, supporting more than 100 construction jobs and 400 jobs ongoing. As Darwin takes its place as a new maritime hub servicing defence and industry across the entire region. Santos has reported that its $5 billion Barossa gas and condensate project is already 20% complete and remains on schedule and on budget. Yes, the $40 billion 2030 target is big, it is ambitious, but we're doing whatever it takes to get there. And that's all without mentioning the $30 billion Sun Cable project charging towards reality, winning permits to run cable through Indonesian waters and putting together an expert team to help light up Singapore.
1: That's the former Chief Minister, Michael Gunner. That speech was in February last year. So 12 months ago, what's happened since then? Well, the ship lift. Last news on that was the budget has blown out and the government's joint venture partner building it has gone into voluntary administration. Sun Cable has gone into voluntary administration. Project Sea Dragon has now gone into voluntary administration. And as for Santos and its Barossa project, well, if you've been following the headlines, you will know that Santos has lost its appeal against a court decision that overturned approvals for the project full stop. Hasn't aged well, some of that speech by Mr Gunner. It is 18 to 1 on the Country Hour. Yesterday on the program, we heard about the company Tyvan Limited. It used to be called TNG Limited. Anyway, Tyven is forging ahead with a plan to build a minerals processing plant at Middle Arm near Darwin. It would seem Tyven could become the first tenant at this Middle Arm Sustainable Development Precinct that has been talked about so much over the last 12, 18 months. Uh, I'm joined in the studio by Dan Fitzgerald. Uh, Dan, the NT government has now shared a few thoughts on this development? Uh,
7: yes, it has, Matt. And Tyvan, it can't exactly hit go on this project straight away. Um, Infrastructure Minister Eva Lawless said the NT government was working with Tyvan to progress its project but had not signed off on a, on a final plan just yet. Uh, read some of this statement. It says... Uh, to enable Tyven to continue initial project planning and development of a proposal for government consideration. The NT government has agreed to hold a piece of land for the company within the middle arm precinct. she goes on to say, the board of Tyven have made a reset on how they will deliver their project and we will work with them to progress this. Tyven will now work on environmental approvals and be required to comply with the conditions established by outcomes of the strategic environmental assessment within that precinct which is currently underway. Um, so,
1: <laughs> A lot of big... There's a lot of work still to be done. There is that is. a fair summary?
7: There is a lot of work still to be done. Um, there's all sorts of mining approvals that will need to happen for the Mount Peak part of the project. So yes. that is where uh, it, it's proposing a mine will that's be That's where about.
1: the vanadium and the titanium and the iron ore will come from.
7: Yeah, so about mm. 230 k's to the north of Alice. So yes. uh, that's all got to happen. Um, so a long way still to go for
1: this company. There's an article about this up on our website right now, if you you are interested search for NT Country Hour and there it is hello my
8: name is and I am from Crocodile Island Rangers one of the women coordinators and you are listening to the Country Hour
1: our text number 0487 991057 Alan Humpty Doo says Matt I wonder who made the most money out of Project Sea Dragon. It definitely wasn't the investors. They'll just move on to the next pie in the sky. Avoid the flying pig projects, reckons Al. And Sam and Catherine says, I'd like to know how much climate forecasting has to do with companies leaving the Northern Territory. Everyone seems to be in denial. About what conditions we'll be living in in 2035, says Sam on 0487991057. There's a bit going on. There really is. For example, the Northern Territory government has today introduced a bill to Parliament to change the NT's petroleum royalty scheme. This is a scheme that hasn't been updated since the 1980s. Is that right, Dan? Hasn't been changed since the 1980s. But a bill has been introduced today. Here is Eva Lawler, the Treasurer and Minister for Territory Development, who says this legislation modernises the Royalty Scheme.
4: Mr Speaker, this bill introduces a new legislative framework from the 1st of July 2023 for the calculation payment and administration of petroleum royalties repealing and replacing the current arrangements contained in the Petroleum Act 1984. The territory's current petroleum royalty scheme was developed in the 1980s and has not been subject to major reform since that time. The industry has undergone substantial technological and operational transformation since then and the existing confidential confidential agreement based royalty regime has not kept pace with changes uh, in the industry. The Territory's petroleum industry is relatively small, with only three producing fields. However, successful development of greenfield sites and the Beetaloo Basin being one of the most promising shale gas resources in the world, could could significantly transform the Territory's petroleum industry. Reform of the petroleum royalty regime is a priority to introduce a contemporary, transparent and a competitive royalty scheme to facilitate investment in the Territory and unlock this significant economic potential. Reform of the Territory's petroleum royalty framework will ensure the Territory is receiving a fair return for for removal of its non-renewable resources while providing industry with the certainty and transparency required for investment decisions. This will reinforce the Territory's attractiveness as an investment destination. which is consistent with recommendations from the, territory, the, from the Territory Economic Reconstruction Commission for a robust regulatory environment to facilitate economic growth. All royalty payers will be subject to a consistent and transparent royalty scheme with a standard royalty calculation. Existing producers will be transitioned into the new scheme so that all, patro- pro- all petroleum produced in the territory will be under one consistent scheme from commencement of this legislation.
1: There is Minister Eva Lawler in Parliament today introducing this bill to change the NT's petroleum royalty scheme here at the Country Hour. We have put in calls to Apia for comment but are yet to hear back. Get your garden ready for autumn with the March issue of ABC Gardening Australia magazine. Select some gorgeous ground covers, grow herbs for the cooler months and choose your favourite bulbs for spring colour. Learn about gardening on a steep slope, the wonders of compost and the benefits of chook tractors. And read about the amazing
9: revegetation of a tropical Queensland island. Gardening Australia magazine. Available from newsagents and abcmagazines.com.au.
1: On Twitter, George Scott, who is a cattle producer who spent a lot of time in the Northern Territory. He runs cattle on the Queensland side these days. Uh, But he writes in regards to the fall of Project Sea Dragon, he says, All my life, the potential of the top end has been spoken of. Those who have been able to realise it are usually top enders themselves. They understand the challenges and costs of doing anything in that part of the world. This project has gone the way of so many before it. Our text number here at the Country Hour is 0487 There is a lot going on. There really is on this Wednesday lunchtime. Let's have a little bit of a tune by our friend Troy Cassadaly, and then we'll go and learn what's been done to help farmers in the battle against fall armyworm.
2: I've been driving every back road again and again With one headlight working And it only overheats every now and then
1: now I guess that's pretty good. Troy Daily. On a Wednesday lunchtime, you are tuned into the Country Hour. It has been three years since fall armyworm was first detected in Australia. You'll remember this pest was initially found in the Cape York region of Queensland, but then spread across Australia. It got into the territory. It's got into most jurisdictions. I think one even popped up in Tasmania from memory. Anyway, it's a hungry, hungry caterpillar and it's taken a liking to many crops, including sorghum and including corn. Researchers, they are working flat out to help farmers in the fight against this pest. How is that all going? Lucy Cooper has the latest.
10: In a Queensland Department of Agriculture office in the small coastal town of Bowen in North Queensland, a team of scientists work around the clock in a fight against fall armyworm. Leading the charge is Siva Subramenium, an entomologist who has lived in Bowen for the last 23 years. In just three short years, the team have investigated how to manage the pest, monitor the population, understand the biology of the new pest, monitor resistance and research natural enemies that are currently available. It's an extraordinary effort, which Subra says has led them to make new findings on the most
9: effective controls. We did some quite a lot of survey around Queensland and uh, Western Australia and other territory to look at what are the natural enemies for fall armyworm. And through that one, we found around 15 different types of parasitic wasp uh, attacking fall armyworm. So that's a good source of information. The growers could good to know what is actually available to control. And there are some natural controls started to work when the new pests come. Always they take a bit of time to work, and also some predators and some uh, nuclear polyhetrovirus attack fall and some fungal product, fungal also, fungal pathogen also attacking fall armyworm, and also we found some nematodes attacking fall armyworm. This this sort of information actually helping to understand better and minimize their army worm population and less rely on insecticides.
10: In 2020, Subra and his team found that up to 80% of sweet corn crops were being decimated by fall armyworm. But current research has dramatically decreased this amount to about 30 to 40%. But for any horticultural production, this is still a high loss. So, where does Subra think that leaves the hort industry in coming years? are we going to be moving to a genetically modified future the
9: gm crop is a bit of a um, question for australia especially on food crops but the gm corn and thing in uh, usa and central america has been used where for other purposes but is uh, getting some regulatory approvals and think the GM crop is is take time consuming and it's not an immediate solution. Maybe in the future some stage, but at this stage, GM GM crop is a bit questionable.
10: For those who are on the outside looking in, what do they think the future holds for crops like corn and sweet corn that are particularly affected by fall armyworm?
11: It is a relentless pest and I wouldn't want to be a corn grower
10: that's Levin Cookson, an agricultural field research agronomist in bowen
11: we we grow corn here for trial purposes we we're testing new products there's a lot of group twenty eights um, that uh, are looking at being looked at for registration um, but they're all the same group of or same mode of action and you know we only have a handful of um, effective uh, chemicals at the moment so that little bit of resistance, when it does come, could cause, um, could cause a collapse in the industry pretty much. So um, It's high risk. I don't know where you go from that, whether you start looking down the GM path or what. It's a possibility. Um, I believe that's what they're doing in the US. It is a really difficult pest and it's, it's not so much even in the same ballpark as Heliothus because fall armyworm is constant. You know, and they lay huge egg masses of up to 200 plus eggs and it's just, it's really hard to see them coming and and to stop them without just spraying constantly.
10: He says it's a race against time against resistance.
11: You know, this is an incredible pest um, that produces a a hell of a lot of generations in a year and is is perfectly capable of developing resistance at, at quite a rapid rate, so... I think whilst there's only a handful of products that are available, they are going to get overused. It's it's inevitable. And, yeah, any of these sort of management practices that don't involve using the chemistry, mate, you've got to use them uh, wherever you can.
1: That is Levin Cookson, who's an agronomist based in Bowen, Queensland, speaking there to Lucy Cooper about the ongoing battle against fall armyworm. I was having a beer with a bloke the other day from the Catherine region, who is just not going to plant sorghum this year, sick of fall armyworm getting into the crop and causing problems.
2: Hey everyone, my name is Bernard England, and I'm a mill worker in Manunggurra community. And you're listening to the Country Hour on ABC.
1: Matt Brown with you this afternoon. Before 1.30, we'll be talking about peanuts. Could growing them in northern Australia be a win for your average lover of peanut butter, but also the cattle industry. It's really
3: exciting to see that from taking an in-season cut of biomass, that treatment has actually not had a particularly negative effect on the nut quality and yield that we're seeing at the end of the season.
1: Yeah, so we'll take a look at this research, and some of it is happening in Catherine. So the idea is growing peanuts not just for that end nut product, but potentially using the biomass on top, cut it in the early phase and use it as a stock feed, turn it into hay. Would doing that create more value and give this crop a better chance of succeeding in the north? And our top story today is the fall of Project Sea Dragon. That plan to have a massive prawn farm out on Lejeune, well, the whole thing's gone into voluntary administration.
2: You know, once you uh, go into administration, it's very rare that you come out the other end, so uh, certainly sounds like the project uh, is finished, for these guys at least.
1: And we're getting a lot of text messages from you about this story. I'll get to them in a moment, but first let's go to the Weather Bureau. Sally Cutter is there this afternoon. Sally, what's the latest on the tropical low in the Gulf?
12: Well, the, the low is still in the Gulf. It uh, looks like it's probably down in the southeastern parts of the Gulf. So we, overnight, we had one. one we get these polar or polar orbiting satellites that can do look at the wind or that work out the wind speeds, and it put it down in that area. We are expecting it to come across the, the coast tomorrow and then drift a bit southwards. And exactly where it comes across and how long it stays over Queensland will depend on how much rain the, the Barclay gets. But we could see some reasonable totals of up to widespread falls of up to about thirty five millimeters as it comes across.
1: Okay, and how far south could that moisture get, Sally?
12: Oh, it, there's a bit of uncertainty with that. We probably could, to Barrow Creek, Tea Tree way, there's some indications it might get a little bit further south, but the models keep on changing their minds. It depends exactly on how, what sort of structure this has as it crosses the coast and what it, where it goes, how, how much rain we get down to the, the Lester and the Simpson districts.
1: OK, and the possibility of a, of a cyclone is that now well and truly gone
12: yeah it's looking pretty sad for a low out in the gulf at the moment it was it's quite small the atmosphere just isn't set up right it doesn't have the depth to really get itself going. It is small, so we are keeping a close eye on it. But the winds overnight were well... The stronger winds were well removed from the centre of the system, so it sort of puts it into more of the monsoonal low category rather than a tropical cyclone
1: category. Yeah, Okay. then. And just on the topic of cyclones, we have a, a text here from Keith asking the question... On the cyclone that has uh, caused so many problems in New Zealand, and essentially the question is, you know, is that the most southern cyclone ever? Well, it's the we, New
12: Zealand does see cyclones. The what happens is they form in the tropics, so a tropical cyclone, and the term cyclone is actually another name for a, a low. Or and highs, or so in, if you're using that nomenclature, the highs are anticyclones. The but the, the tropical cyclones, as they move south, they move over colder water, and they undergo what's called an extra-tropical transition. So if you see uh, an image of Gabrielle, there's the, so there's some doing the rounds of them, sort of tracking it through. it's it's nice and tight with the storms around the middle and then as it gets closer to New Zealand it sort of spreads out and it loses all the deep convection on it. So that's when it's undergone its extratropical transition so this happens quite frequently if there's no land in the way and so they will go a long way south and one of the major ones that New Zealand had was back in 1988 and in, in the course of my career I've seen a few that go, have gone down through that area. So they start in the tropics, the as a tropical cyclone, and then once they get into the colder water and they get sort of tangled up in sort of the various jets, they, they then undergo that extra tropical transition and right. can end up a fair way south.
1: So is New Zealand referring to it as Cyclone Gabrielle? Or, yes. Yep. Or is it getting referred yes. to as ex tropical cyclone? What's the?
12: Uh, no, the from what when oh. it went through after it went through Lord Howe Island, we recorded. So not Lord Howe, Norfolk Island. We were referring to the tropical cyclone then, and then once it sort of got further south and it had cleared Norfolk Island. The Met Service, which is the Bureau equivalent, said that they were going to call it Cyclone Gabrielle. So they dropped the tropical part and and just called it Cyclone Gabrielle.
1: Okay. So in terms of, is this the most southern cyclone ever? Well,
12: well, it's probably not uncommon to get... (laughs) to strong systems to go that far south. It's just unfortunate that New Zealand was in the way. Uh, Yeah,
1: understood, and it is causing a lot of damage. Uh, Just quickly, central Australia, much to report over the next few days?
12: Uh, Hot. That's probably the main, the take-home message, very hot. So, yeah, it's a heat wave, low-intensity heat wave type hot.
1: Yalara expecting a top of 41 today, Wataka 41, Docker river 41, Rabbit Flat 40, not nice. No, and the minimums are up there as well. Yep. Alrighty then, thanks so much for your time. That's okay.
2: Hello, my name is Sam Madrin. I'm from Gumbalanya Meats, and you're listening to the Country Hour on the ABC. It is
1: 11 past one. Our text number 0487991057. We got a text from Mick at Lake Bennett. G'day Mick. He says, seems very quiet on the progress of the Arrows when it comes to any updates. Could this be another failed project for the Northern Territory? Mick is referring to Arrows, the Adelaide River Offstream Water Storage Project, aka an offstream dam on the Adelaide River. Well Mick, Infrastructure Minister Eva Lawler was asked about this in Parliament in question time yesterday. Let's have a listen to what the Minister said.
4: So with Manton uh, Dam we're up to the detailed design of the infrastructure components, um, the assessment of the environmental and social impacts are underway and there's further further community consultation and stakeholder engagement uh, that will be occurring. With ARROWS, that environmental impact assessment is also occurring, uh, water allocation plan for that Adelaide River catchment is being done right now, concept plans of the infrastructure components are being worked on, community consultation, because there's going to be some land that will need to be acquired as well for ARROWS. But um, as I said, it's a big project, nearly 200 million, for Mountain Dam's return to service, and that was in the federal budget, the recent federal um, budget in October last year. Nearly 100 million will develop, uh, will deliver a new pipeline to support the Middle Arm Sustainable Development Precinct. So from going from Mountain Dam out towards or up towards Middle Arm and nearly 20 million for the project development work um, around Arrows. So uh, I think it's about 18 million overall, but 18 to 20 million to get moving on the work on Arrows.
1: That's the Infrastructure Minister, Eva Lawler. I hope that provides you with a little bit of clarity, Mick. My long understanding on this is that the government is first working on bringing Manton Dam back into service. That's the first project to get done. The timeline for Arrows is much larger. Our text number 0487 Plenty of messages here about the fall of Project Sea Dragon, its parent company, Sea Farms, has had enough. It does not want to fund Project Sea Dragon anymore, and so it has fallen into voluntary administration.
2: You know, once you uh, go into administration, it's very rare that you come out the other end, so uh, certainly sounds like the project uh, is finished, for these guys at least.
1: Yeah, I was Tony Schaefer on the program a moment ago. He is based there in Kananara. On the text line, Maurice says, how could Anyone see Sea Dragon as a sound investment after witnessing what happened to the Queensland prawn industry, which was closed down overnight by an introduced pest, all of that investment gone? And a text here from Alex in Alice Springs he says, Matt, I'll reiterate that remark that you read out earlier, observing the string of failures of large investment projects in the territory. He says, I've also seen this. All of my life in the Territory, successive governments of either political persuasion consistently refuse to heed the lessons of history. Each one believes they're the exception to the rule, says Alex. The reality in the Northern Territory, or Northern Australia simply does not enjoy a natural advantage, which is why, for example, the Commonwealth is funding the Middle-Arm Precinct development to the tune of $1.5 billion. If we had a natural advantage, investment of this nature wouldn't have, would have occurred a long time ago. The north of Australia can only grow from the bottom up, not from the top down, says Alex. Government should invest in what we already have, rather than in what does not exist. 0487991057 is our text number. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year, with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au. Entries close February 28th. Proudly supported by the Kandinen Group and ABC Rural. (laughs) Al's got a pitch for the NT government. Here's his pitch. He says, the government can give me a million dollars. I'll grow millions of sunflowers in Humpty Doo. Five dollars each. I'll buy new machinery. Hundreds of people will be employed. It's a win-win, says Al. Watch out, Al, you might get a call from the government. Sunflowers, there's something different for the Territory. The government loves different. They really do. 16 past one. Territory cattle producers. Now, there's an industry that's been around for a while, cattle producers, and the story hasn't changed for them. They're always looking to sell fat, healthy cattle, run a sustainable herd that provides lots of calves. That's the name of the game. That's how you make money. Well, producers from Central Australia gathered at Undulia Station this week for some tips on how to best feed and breed cattle. Our reporter Victoria Ellis went along to this Breadwell Fedwell program and spoke to organiser Peter Schuster.
13: Breadwell Fedwell is a national program in this particular area. The focus is on northern beef, but we also have workshops for sheep and southern cattle.
8: And can you just talk me through what are some of the key things you've been talking about today?
13: We're focusing on how breeding and feeding can best be deployed to increase the profitability of beef farming operations so or beef cattle operations. So um, how to how to feed animals to make the most of genetics and what the tools are in both breeding and feeding to... Maximise the, the opportunity presented by both.
8: In terms of feed around here, what sort of things have you been saying?
13: Oh, well, look, this year is just a, a fantastic year. It's um, off the charts, according to the locals, and it, it just looks magnificent, and the cattle are showing that. The hazers cattle that we drove past coming in here today are in magnificent condition. Uh, but that's not always the case. So... Each business has its profit drivers, and uh, and two really critical ones are reproductive performance and market specifications. What we're talking about is how to select the genetics that can best match your farm and uh, and your profit drivers, so your markets as well, and how to feed those animals to make the most of those genetics. So in in country like this, uh, we're looking at growth rates and um, how to manage cattle Uh how to identify cattle with better growth rate potential, better fertility and then how to feed them to make the most of that genetic advantage.
8: What's your sense of how it's going and how on point the information that you're providing is for the demands of producers who are here?
13: Some of it we've got right. The practical exercise with the bulls I think is terrific. Producers have got the opportunity to assess a cohort of bulls based purely on visual and then to refine their decision making with the help of EBVs and and other data. So it's all about improving accuracy.
8: And EBVs are?
13: Estimated breeding values. So that is, uh, it's an estimation of the genetic merit of a bull and what they'll pass on to their progeny. So rather than looking at the animal in front of them, it's the genetic merit of that animal. So how it will Uh, the genetic information it'll pass on to its progeny and how those progeny will perform so it's one tool available to producers and we discuss it in in a fair bit of detail and um, it's a great program this bread well fed well program it's a great introduction to estimated breeding values and um, that's something that producers can really benefit from the day
8: And if there are people um, from Central Australia who really wanted to come, but they couldn't come for whatever reason today, is there like a short, sharp, direct bit of information that you can give them if they were listening to the program that would help them, that they could put into action or somewhere where you could direct them for further resources?
13: Yeah, look, there's, um, there's information available through Future Beef or on the MLA website about the Bread Well, Fed Well program. And I would encourage them to, uh, if they Google Breadwell Fed Well Meat and Livestock Australia, they'll find that information. This is a pilot, so this is the first time this program has ever been run. Uh, what we are going to do is refine the content based on the feedback here today, and we are asking all of the producers, the participants here today. There are about 30 people here. Uh, we had to turn a lot away, unfortunately. There was a huge amount of interest. But producers can jump online now at Breadwell Fed Well on the MLA website. They can register their interest in in attending further events. What we're going to do is train trainers, um, so that there'll be people from regions all over Australia who will be able to do, deliver this program. So that's going to that training will occur in March. This program will be rolled out toward the middle of the year across the nation, and there'll be opportunities for producers to participate in workshops like this all around the country. US or utilise your EU um, certification.
5: Terry Martin from Mount Denison Station.
8: Peter was telling me that there was so many people who wanted to do this workshop it booked out you know, weeks ago and it is the pilot program. What do you think that says about the demand for this sort of knowledge in the area?
5: I think it just says that you know, people in the industry are willing to adapt and learn new things and you know, always drive the industry forward. Everyone's at different points in their business and their production and everyone's obviously... Looking to improve on different areas, and it's sort of it's been catered to cover all everyone's needs and different wants from the course.
8: Has there been anything in particular uh, today that you've gone, oh, we we can implement that at our place?
5: Yeah, probably about sort of your, your gestation periods and about you know, how important it is to ensure that you know, your young heifers are getting in calf as quickly as possible because that sets them up for the rest of their life.
8: How old are they when you get heifers in calf at the moment?
5: probably about sort of that two-year age and that but you know sort of about make sure that they're at the right weights and that when they do first getting calf and that.
8: Now having listened to what was said today will you try to get them in calf earlier?
5: Uh, probably not earlier but make sure that they're within a certain cycle try to get them in their earlier cycle first gestation cycle to get them in calf then because you know that's obviously a key driver for their performance later in life.
1: That is Terry Martin from Mount Denison Station, who was at the Breadwell-Fedwell program, which was held on Undulia Station. Now, for everyone involved in the cattle industry who may be thinking of heading to Darwin for the annual NT Cattlemen's Association Conference, an important email went out yesterday regarding a scam. Dan Fitzgerald joins me again in the studio. What do people need to be aware of, Dan?
7: Well, the, yeah, this is from the NTCA, Matt. Um, it, it says, we've been made aware that there is an email being circulated claiming to sell and distribute attendee lists for the 2023 NTCA conference. Uh, this email, it's not from the NTCA. It's not from conference or organisers, um, the NTCA says, we advise you to exercise caution and not to respond to any emails or provide any personal or financial information to anyone claiming to sell or distribute any attendee lists. Uh, It's a scam, pretty much. Yeah,
1: yeah. The NTCA doesn't put out attendee lists. That doesn't happen. It's a scam. So if you have any questions or you see something strange, get in contact with the NT Cattlemen's Association, we'll get in contact with the ACCC.
7: Yeah, ACCC Scam Watch, put that into your search engine, um, you can report it there.
1: Okay, thank you for that update, Dan. It's 24 past one. Peanut butter, I don't know about you, it's definitely in our household. I'd imagine it's in most pantries around Australia. But did you know that to make peanut butter, Australia imports more peanuts than it actually grows? Well, a trial is underway on farms across northern Australia, which could give growers an extra revenue stream if they plant nuts. It could also help the cattle industry. Megan Hughes has the story.
0: It's been a long-held dream of the peanut industry to have a 100% Aussie-grown crop, but it's never been feasible. But what if growers could use more of the plant and get more money for it? CQ University researchers are in the second year of a trial to use the top of the plant as livestock feed. Senior lecturer Tina Trotter says it's showing some promising results.
3: We're really excited with what's happened after this first year of trials. Uh, it's great to see some of the data coming in and it's really exciting to see that from taking an in-season cut of biomass that could be taken as cut and carry hay or could it potentially in the future just be a livestock graze and the use of that biomass for livestock, that treatment has actually not had a particularly negative effect on the nut quality and yield that we're seeing at the end of the season.
6: What's the
0: benefit of of having a crop that is dual purpose? There is a value that can be
3: taken from the crop early in the season. So that's money in a farmer's pocket uh, before waiting the the maybe five months before you get a, a final product. The value that we're getting out of dual purpose peanut crop is that the biomass itself is uh, really um, high in nutrients, it's high in protein and so it's a really good uh, feed for livestock and so that can help to improve meat quality um, and that's, a, that's another key benefit particularly of this crop that we're looking for, for northern Australia.
0: The peanut crops have been grown in Catherine in the Northern Territory and Emerald, Home Hill, Tully and Georgetown in Queensland. Emerald-based grower Aaron Kylie is taking part. The first year they planted 13 varieties of peanuts, but now it's been narrowed down to just two. And while you need sunny skies for harvesting peanuts, Mr Kylie says the recent wet weather is appreciated for growing them.
7: So the end of last season we had two lots of rain On trying to dig, so you lose peg strength digging those peanuts. And then, so this season's been a good start because they're planted and we've had had over 80 mil of rain, so yeah, they should power out of the ground.
0: Australia imports thousands of tonnes of peanuts each year from countries like Argentina. Peanuts have been grown domestically since the 1800s, but a commercial industry was only established in the 20th century in Kingaroy in the South Burnett. Now, they're also grown as a secondary crop for sugarcane farmers in Bundaberg. But why have efforts by peanut butter giant Beega Foods not been successful in establishing a fully homegrown crop? In Emeralds in the Central Highlands, peanuts used to be popular, with over 1,000 hectares of land planted out at its peak, according to Mr Kylie.
7: One of the biggest, I suppose, issues has been the water availability in the Central Highlands over the last six or seven years and that's where the hectares has dropped off and also with you know citrus growing throughout the region so a lot of that red soil that was under center pivot is being taken into citrus so that's taken a few you know a fair few hectares out of that that market in the central highlands but there is still growers that have will have opportunity to grow them into the future
0: as well as a lack of water availability transporting peanuts all the way to southern queensland for processing is expensive cqu postdoctoral research fellow drew portman says this trial could help with this problem
7: so what's happened over the years is the actual growing areas of peanuts has shrunk you can successfully grow peanuts in other areas which were proven but one of the challenges is the costs of transport to places for processing so, I mean, big picture long term is that if you can get enough farmers to be able to grow peanuts in these areas viably, then it may be viable to build plants in those areas.
0: Bigger Foods is a sponsor of this trial. The company slashed prices paid to farmers for peanuts last year, saying the move will help more shoppers choose Australian-grown products. In a statement to the ABC, Executive General Manager Adam McNamara said Big Group is happy to be involved in this research though he said it's too early to discuss what the findings could mean for the local peanut industry and that their focus remains on securing good outcomes from the traditional peanut-growing areas.
1: Megan Hughes with that report, and you can read more about that story online if you search for ABC Rural. Time now to head to the sale yards. Of all the latest prices out of Dublin, here's John Traeger. Good afternoon. Numbers increased this week as Athens offered 300 live weight and open oxen cattle. Grown steers sold to 380 cents, with grown heifers selling to a top of 346 cents. Light bulls sold from 320 to 430 cents. Medium bulls made 250 to 355 cents, with extreme heavyweights selling to 240 cents a kilo. This is John Trager at the South Australian Livestock Exchange for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour. Think of that, John. On the text, Haggis reckons they'll put a toll on the Lejeune Road just to try and recoup some of the dollars. Anna says, "Haven't peanuts been grown in Katherine and Canungra in the past?" Yes, they have, Anna. Just go and ask Peanut Company of Australia about that. I think they lost a lot of money back in the day. That's it for today's Country Hour. Big show. Keep it rural.